Hello and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where Macintosh and Mod force each other to watch movies they should have already seen. I'm David, aka Macintosh. And I'm Diana, aka Mod. What are we watching this week? Macintosh and Mod haven't seen what? I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week, David is making me watch Taxi Driver. Uh-huh. A mentally unstable Vietnam War veteran works as a nighttime taxi driver in New York City, where the perceived decadence and sleaze feeds his urge for violent action while attempting to save a pre-adolescent prostitute in the process. <laughs> That summed up the whole movie quite nicely. That's very accurate. Sometimes synopses don't do that too well. No, sometimes they either give everything away or they don't give you any information. I feel like I'm in a mini Scorsese phase right now. You? Oh, we are. Like, even Reservoir Dogs interrupting that is still pretty Scorsese. We had Goodfellas. We have this, and I know Raging Bull is on our list eventually. Raging Bull's there. We'll have other ones too, probably. I might, we... do, the, I might do the King of Comedy down the line, because I really love that movie. But uh, Again, I've never seen that. So... Me seeing this movie, I, it came up as naturally mm-hmm. one of those AFI movies. I rented it, watched it, blew my mind mm-hmm. when I saw it. Like, just totally unexpected and different. The real question I have for you is, why haven't you seen it? And by that I mean, why has it taken you so long to get around to seeing this? I seem to have a gap in movies from the 70s mm. and early 80s. And like, that is my wheelhouse. That's so weird. Um, I I did all the musicals from the 60s, all the, the more young adult movies from the 80s. I've seen most of everything from the 90s, so long as it wasn't, you know, age inappropriate. Yeah. Um, but I just, I think there's just a gap, and I don't, I don't... Do you like long, depressing, and sometimes very inert movies? No. That's well, no, probably part no, of your problem. That's not true. I do like those movies. But again, this one came from the 70s, so it's not one that would have been in my normal rotation. It certainly wouldn't have been on the approved list from Blockbusters as, you know, as a burgeoning, you know, film aficionado when I was 13. No. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I. it was just kind of like, oh, that's over there. That's a I know I know that's Robert De Niro's like best film ever, but I didn't I didn't really have any other information. I don't know that I agree with that, but we'll have to wait till we get to Raging Bull to have that debate. Okay. Because that to me is a, is a strong debate. Contender. Okay. Um, before you saw this movie, mm-hmm. what did you think it was about? Well, a taxi driver. <laughs> oh, good answer. Good answer. <laughs> okay, I knew it was number about one a, answer on the board. I knew it was about a taxi driver who was a little bit crazy, uh-huh. and that Jodie Foster played a prostitute. That was all I knew. Okay, and this was like I knew the piece of trivia where she was in the movie, but she was too young to have seen it on her own when it played in the theater. Yeah, like I knew that bit, and I thought that was kind of funny. Now having seen it, mm-hmm. and I, I I say this because to me this movie almost warrants like. A full film school thesis. You could build a class around this movie with as much going on in it as there is. I what know, I would I don't know if I would say film school, but maybe um, a psychology class. And psychology and cultural studies too. But, yes. But what do you think this movie is about? Loneliness. Loneliness. And isolation. Okay. Maybe a little bit of longing. What makes you think that? Uh, well, it's 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 all about Travis the taxi driver yeah. and he can't sleep so he's he's always driving around he just you know he says in the movie I might as well make some money off of it yeah and he's by himself all the time and intentionally isolating himself more and more well and he's he's even pursued a job where yeah he's with other people but he's not a part of the action he's literally just background and he's he's a background player in his own life yeah um and he's living in a city that's only feeding that Yes. And, you know, in 1970, it's 1976 when the movie came out, but it's even in 75. Mm-hmm. You know, this is peak grungy New York City area. When, yeah. This one where, was like, really gross. I mean, the only movies he goes to are pornos. The yeah. only The only things he sees, he only sees women as hypersexualized. He only uh, deals with trash and filth. Like, that's it. And that's all he's around all the time. And that makes it worse is that he's on... 
Well, and then the one time he hangs out with um, the fellow taxi drivers, all they do is talk about sex and... Drugs. Yeah. So... Not to mention alcohol. Mm-hmm. He's on pills. Mm-hmm. It just gets even worse. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think about this as a feminist movie? And a movie about masculinity? I... Th- it's definitely a movie about masculinity. Yes. I don't know that I would agree with the statement that's a feminist movie. And the the only part what I I do like is that the Sybil Shepherd character Betsy yes character name, uh, she she takes a lot of control over when she she makes it very clear I don't like the situation I'm leaving I don't like you go away like she's she's in she, some... she feels very in control and and also. Iris, the prostitute, yeah. is such a three-dimensional character. Yes. Like, she's not she's not just... A, she's not a, a Madonna virginal character, nor is she just a dumb kid, just this horrible slut-shamed character. She's just... She's complex. She's a human being who is in a horrible situation. Yeah, she's in a bad situation, but it's not like... She's not aware of that. No, and it's they, it's so, it's really it's it's good that they played that way because I think any other way and it would have just read really awful on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I bring that up. Martin Scorsese has this wonderful quote that he gave to Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. He says it was my feminist film, and I think that's a good qualifier from him. Okay, <laughs> but he <laughs> says because it takes macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. This shows that kind of thinking, shows the kind of problems some men have, bouncing back and forth between goddesses and whores. Hmm. I just found that that was an interesting quote. I don't know that he pulls that off necessarily. I don't think. I I think. But there's an undercurrent running there. I don't think we get enough of the women for that to be seen. Yeah. To to be shown off. And I think that's that's definitely where it, it doesn't pull that story off completely. But it is interesting to watch it in our culture now with more awareness to think about that theme with it too. I find it interesting. But I'd agree with you that it is it is not about that at all. It's about a man who's well, okay. mentally ill and alone. Okay, so he idolizes Betsy from afar. And so I guess in that way, uh, she's his goddess. And Iris, he sees, is literally just a whore yeah. that he wants to save. Whereas with Betsy, he goes on a date with her, he takes her to a dirty movie, and so then he's kind of trying to turn her into a whore but I guess we don't see... Uh, okay, we get the letter from parents, but we don't see Iris be turned into a goddess. No. So... Uh, well, I think both... I feel like that's a stretch. <laughs> true. I think both of the women reject him and his notions of what women are. Mm-hmm. I think that's more what he's getting at. Yeah. He tr- he thinks of women in those binary terms. Well, many, many men do. I know. And, and what Scorsese is saying is... Travis is the full end of the spe- like take that to its complete logical end and this is what you get hmm. from a man. It's an interesting it's an interesting side note to think about when you're watching the movie because you could okay. watch this over and over again thinking about different things and get a completely different message. That's true. So, uh, yeah. We'll talk a little bit about the making of the movie. Okay. Written by Paul Schrader. Now, have you ever seen anything by Paul Schrader? The name sounds so familiar, but I don't know who that is. He did an interview with Jesse Thorne a little while back. Um, he wrote the movie Mishima, Life Before Chapters. He did American Gigolo. He's... I don't know that there's a lot of movies that you've seen of his. The most recent thing he did was The Canyons with Lindsay Lohan. No. Um, but... No. I got nothing on him. Kind of a twisted, tortured genius, dude. Um... He's a very interesting writer who also likes way too dark things. And at the time that he wrote this, he had already been through a divorce, breakup with a longtime girlfriend, living alone, living in his car, found an interest in guns. Are we sensing a theme? <laughs> oh, is this a little autobiographical? Is this yes. like his own personal torture porn? Now, to be fair, <laughs> he didn't go that... I don't think no. he was that deep into it, but he was in that mindset when he wrote the script. Okay. And so all of that fleshes out. I think that comes through in how real this feels. This is a bizarre story, but you never but what's crazy about it is you never feel like this couldn't happen. 
You always feel like Travis could really be a real human. Well, this is definitely a film where um, some life has tried to imitate the art. We'll talk about that. We can talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Okay, that was the other part. I did know a little bit about that connection before I saw this movie. Okay. I kind of had forgotten about it. I'll mention mention it now and we'll get... We can talk about it when we get to Jodie Foster, but Mm -hmm. this... This is a huge source of inspiration for John Hinckley Jr.'s assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. in 1981. Hinckley was obsessed with Jodie Foster and took a lot of inspiration from Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. Mental illness is real. If you need help, call somebody. Yes. That's that's just the end of it. Um, Scorsese came in later. So Schrader was best friends with Brian De Palma. And to be fair, all of these guys were friends with each other in the California scene. Um, De Palma was going to direct it. It He got two weeks into casting and they fired him. Okay. Probably drugs. De Palma's a weird dude. And okay, so, so Scorsese came in and decided to direct this. Yes. Okay, uh, side note. Does Scorsese usually write his own movies? I... Yes and no? I don't... I think he does. Is he about a half and half kind of guy? It depends. He, you know, I, I I would have to go look at a whole bunch of it. Up until now, he had. Okay. If my memory serves That makes correctly. sense from a money perspective. Because his first studio movie was Mean Streets. Okay, and he didn't and he write did that Godfellas. One. No, he didn't write Goodfellas. No, Godfellas. But, what am I thinking? And he didn't write this. I don't... I think... Well, Schrader wrote Raging Bull. Okay. So he, these two guys wound up working together for a little while, and Scorsese goes back and forth with different people. Was Raging Bull before this or after? After this. Okay. So. So um, was okay. Was this the first time Robert De Niro worked with Martin Scorsese? No, no, no. no. Mean Streets was before this. Okay. In nineteen seventy-three. Okay. Scorsese had De Niro attached with him, and De Niro mm-hmm. was the one interested in the script at the time. Mm-hmm. They agreed to do it. Producers mm-hmm. were excited. And then De Niro went to go do a movie in Italy with Bernardo Bertolucci. So he was gone. <laughs> and as he was gone, Scorsese took on Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, mm-hmm. which is a completely different style for him. But they were both doing other movies. Okay. And the producers were like, come on. <laughs> but that gave some time before it. And when we talk about Robert De Niro, we can talk about how that gave him more time to develop the character. Okay. Scorsese talks about making this movie like he see he was very interested in ideas of movies as a drug-induced dream that you don't know whether you're awake or asleep. That makes a lot of sense for this. There's film, a lot of feeling, especially with how like the art direction and the lighting and the music he chose. That makes a lot of sense with what he was trying to convey. And they took a long time to make this movie. Um, I they filmed this in 1975. Okay. They were filming it well before they ever got to the release. It's not that uncommon. Based on a pretty small budget, I think it was around a million. Okay. Um, had a fairly small budget and had to just come up with solutions on the fly. But in so doing, Scorsese, which I think makes him such a master director, is he's making, he's kind of having to do these guerrilla film techniques, but then uses those moments to create interesting background. So one of the, one of the biggest things was when they filmed this in New York City, there was a sanitation worker strike. That means garbage was everywhere. So that added everywhere. to all the garbage on location. So what you're seeing is, you know, all this garbage filled that ambiance and helped make it even darker. Hmm. Which was really, that was an interesting thing that happened with them. And like, I noticed this when, you know, he's standing outside talking to Peter Boyle at the cab. Mm-hmm. They didn't bother to try to just mic those two guys. They just let the whole ambiance play. And he didn't care what you did and didn't hear mm-hmm. because of the street noise. That made the movie better. In my opinion. I do like all that ambient noise. Huh. And I've definitely become more aware of sound editing over the last couple years. Just all of that. They they use the city as much as they possibly could because they had to come up with solutions in a minute. It definitely helped. Yeah. And I... I yeah, they're... The trash... That's a lot. That's a lot of trash. Yes. Not fun. No. All right. So now we get to the cast. Okay. And one of the things we're going to play with this is there were an endless number of famous people okay. who were almost cast in the main three roles. So I could see that. With it being such a small film, you know, ro- a rotating list of cast happens. Um, so we'll talk about each actor, and then I'll run through the names, and you can give me a thumbs up or thumbs down on whether they would have been good. Okay. So we'll start first, though, talking about Robert De Niro. He's amazing. I really liked him in this. Uh, I forget. He was so scrawny. I think that, and I think that was intentional for this movie. 
Like he he was always a little a little more thin, but you know you see him the same you know two years earlier in The Godfather, well, and he's filled out a bit more. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, he's definitely filled out more in Go- in uh, Goodfellas. Jesus Christ, I cannot say that name. I meant I meant The Godfather Part Two though. Oh, Godfather. When he's I'm trying to think. I'm trying to place him in that film. He's the young version of Marlon Brando. In yes. Part two. Well, yeah, he's a little more filled out, but he's more filled out in Goodfellas. Yeah, I mean, he was he was always kind of skinny. I think okay, they well, emaciated him more. In this film, I think what's so jarring for me is, you know, he's got brown hair. Mm-hmm. He's a little, he's not really baby-faced, but he's not wrinkly. Like, he's just, he's he's a young man. Yes. And he is, he's skinny. He is a skinny guy. Um, One of the big things was, and this is talking about the preparation, while he was doing 1900 in Italy, uh-huh. on breaks from the shoot, he got a cab license I knew and about drove that. around New York. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome. To get a feel for what it would be like. And getting a cab license is no easy thing. Mm-mm, no. Well, maybe back then it was probably a little bit easier. It now depends. now it's like a whole thing. It it's, might have it's it, hard. It was probably still hard, but they probably he probably knew somebody who could help him do it. Mm. That that I think that helps with okay. cabbie unions, but he still he did the work and he worked as a cabbie during the breaks mm. in New York while he wasn't filming in Italy. Okay, and so that helped him develop the time in the car and the isolation. Um, he talked with vets, mm-hmm. um, and that was a huge thing. Um, some there there were some critics who brought up, you know, maybe he's not really a vet, maybe he's just posing as one because uh-huh. of the isolation. But Schrader and Scorsese both made it em, have made it eminently clear. No. We specifically wanted to him to be a veteran for Vietnam, to be that much more isolated mm-hmm. and disillusioned with the world. We were we yeah. were capital we were using that as part of this character because of the whole nation's disillusionment yes. after the war. Um, okay. How do you feel about his Midwest accent? <laughs> because apparently he practiced it. <laughs> I didn't notice an accent from him. Yeah, I kept thinking he was still Robert like, De Niro from New York. Yeah, I didn't get like his more like Jersey vibe. It's toned. I mean, it's it's definitely toned down. It was more neutralized, which I think was the end point. But which he is, was, which is fine. It didn't bother me at all. But they were trying to make him from the Midwest specifically, which is interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, if they're gonna, if they really wanted to push that, you know, it, yeah. Um, hometown guy joins the army to pay for college and have a better future ends up going to Vietnam and it makes him insane yeah that's <laughs> is there a favorite moment of him in this movie for you of all the stuff he does I do love him when he's driving the cab because he's doing so much with his face yeah I love his reaction um, the scene with Martin Scorsese as the guy following his wife that's insane it, I mean Martin Scorsese's horrible um the character's horrible and martin scorsese's horrible but like just the the <sighs> robert de niro is able to both be like feel like he's feeling tense but also trying to keep it cool and he doesn't say anything so it's very interesting he's doing a lot of work he's he's a passive character and he's absorbing all of the dirt and grime around him yes he's He's not he's not venting it in any uh-huh. way. He's just absorbing all of the darkness coming into him. So I really liked that. I liked it when that first scene where he's talking with the security guy at the rally for the Oh candidate. god, that scene's amazing. Yeah. That first one where he's talking to him about like how do you become a secret service guy and all all of that. And cluing him off on everything. Yeah. That was really fun because it's kind of unnerving because you know that this has now become part of his plan, but you don't know, is he going to do it now? Is he going to kill the secret service? Like, who is he trying to kill? Like, what's going to happen? So it's very tense. Well, I like I like to, I saw I saw so many times that there are things that happen. I saw you chuckle, like, at certain different times. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those movies where you nervous chuckle. And at many mm-hmm. times you're laughing, I think, uncontrollably at how pathetic he is. Because he is pathetic. Well, he's sad. He's yeah he's alone and you just see him i think one other really great one is um when he's got jackson when they're he's watching american bandstand mm-hmm. and jackson brown is playing loud mm-hmm. and he's got the gun up to his forehead just staring at the television hmm. or when he's got the television leaning over with his foot and suddenly um, kicks it over and just kicks it over <laughs> that made me laugh because i was like yep i knew that was coming but just just the the 
torture in his face. And of course, the whole you talking to me thing. I was going to bring that up. It's classic. It is such a big deal. It's weird. When I saw it, it was built up so much. Mm -hmm. Because you think that line comes from like a gangster movie, Mm -hmm. the way people say it. And it's not. Talking to me? No, I... He's. It's so rooted in character. It's a class... It's, of course, I'm certain it's on one of those top lines from oh yeah it's number 10 on the afi quotes list (laughs) not surprising at all um and i can you can see why it's memorable it's it's really sad and it's kind of like wow this dude's a little crazy yeah like if you didn't see it before in this moment you get he's not okay no he's not and just Mm -hmm. and you just the whole movie you're just watching him get worse and Mm -hmm. worse and worse until it finally explodes yep um okay now let's do the who would have been would anybody who, have been better who else would it could have played him so let me give you the two names that actually got to audition no there were a bunch of names considered i don't think anybody auditioned okay but there were two specific names first that got big consideration okay when brian de palma directed he wanted jeff bridges to play him ew i don't think it would have worked either scorsese initially offered to dustin hoffman i could see that Hoffman, Especially during this time. And Hoffman turned it down and regrets it. Did Do we know what Hoffman decided to do instead of this film? I can't remember. Okay. There was something else, I think. But I, I think he... I, I Actually, I don't know that he accepted anything else. He was just like, you're insane. <laughs> and this script is insane. Oh, absolutely. So, um, let me go through the rest of these lists. You can give me a thumbs up, thumbs down after I say it. Okay. Jack Nicholson. Too much like One Flew Over with Cuckoo's Nest. Warren Beatty. Nope. Burt Reynolds. Mm, uh, At the time. Okay, if Burt Reynolds wanted to take his career in a completely different direction and would shave off that mustache, okay. And he seriously considered it and regrets it as well. Okay. Ryan O'Neill. No. Peter Peter Fonda. Oh, yeah, Peter Fonda could have done it. Uh, He could have done it. Al Pacino. Yes. Definitely could have done it. He could have done it. John Voight. Definitely could have done it. John Voight. I don't think I would have liked him. Uh, Robert Blake. Yeah. I don't know who Robert Blake is. Uh, in Cold Blood. Okay, side note about Dustin Hoffman. Also, that came out in 1976, All the President's Men and Marathon Man. Hey. So that's he, what he was doing instead. He was busy. <laughs> he was busy. Um, David Carradine. Heck yeah. Yeah, He'd David Carradine could have been awesome. Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. Interesting. He would... I think he could have done, like, a little bit more manic awesome. Christopher Walken. No. Elaine Delon. You don't know who that is. Mm-mm. French gangster actor. James Caan. Would have been interesting. Different for him. Roy Scheider. I'm still thinking about James Caan. Nah. <laughs> Roy Scheider. I don't know who that is. Jaws? Roy Scheider? Uh-uh. Oh, my gosh. I'm going <sighs> to... Paul Newman. No. Martin Marlon Brando. Oh, Bill. Bill. Um, Martin Sheen. Ooh. At the time would have been interesting because I think he had just gotten done doing Badlands in 1973. Oh, Martin Sheen. President Bartlett, come back to us, please. Martin Sheen has played a psychopath before, so. Love Martin Sheen. Uh, Elliot Gould. No. No. Alan Alda. Okay. I know everybody says no, but he was recently on a show playing a complete jackass for uh, Louis C.K. that he's apparently phenomenal. So, phenomenal. Eh, maybe. Huh. Maybe. And then George Hamilton. No. <laughs> no. That might have been a producer name. Some of that, too, is probably just like, hey, this person might do it. I think of that list, I think the most interesting people who could have been there instead of Robert De Niro would have been Dustin Hoffman or Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah. I think those are the best with Carradine and Walk- Carradine would have been Carradine amazing. could have been interesting Christopher Walken would have been too he was an no, unknown at the time no Christopher Walken all right let's move on to Jodie Foster she's okay she doesn't get a lot of screen time I really like her yes I will all this period of time I'll always think of just Freaky Friday with her yeah but just I, I am so amazed that she can hold her own against fucking Robert De Niro at the start of his peak. It reminds me so much of Anna Paquin in the piano mm-hmm. being that young and up against people who are so seasoned um, and just being like, nope, 
you're you're the one in charge. You're the one who's doing this. She steals just about every scene she's mm-hmm. in. And, and that's saying something. And her costume design is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, those red platform shoes are pure 70s. Amazing. Um, it was interesting. Schrader originally wrote the character with like a 20 second attention span, like just a stereotypical teenager. Mm-hmm. And then he met a 12 year old prostitute on the street mm-hmm. and invited her up for breakfast. And Creepy. brought Bar- and brought Marty in and said, uh-huh. "I've met Iris. Come meet us for breakfast." Yep. So they talked to her. Okay. And they they started they building out. that character and fleshed her out more. Um, you know, you talked about that she was fourteen at the time mm-hmm. uh, when the movie came out, but she was tw- she was twelve when they were filming, yep. which is insane <laughs> to, for me to think about. I mean, she's a, a movie actor. She's an amazing actress. Yes. Um, and this this movie cements it. There were 250 people involved in this. Oh, damn. And Freaky Friday came out at the same time. So I'll give you the five finalists. Okay. And then just do a quick rundown of everybody else. But the five finalists that she beat out were Mariel Hemingway. Okay. Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, she could have been good. Heather Locklear. She Lo- would have been a lot. She's... No, she's younger. Heather Locklear. No. And Christy McNichol. <laughs> okay, Christy McNichol is like was a lot hotter. <laughs> like I was And this, that was probably a producer thing. They wanted they wanted Christy McNichol, I think. I could see that, especially especially if you want to have a counterpoint to Sybil Shepherd. I like one of the things I've always liked about Jodie Foster, both when she was younger and now, um, she doesn't act as much anymore. She does more directing. Um, she is not a conventional bombshell. She's a beautiful woman, but especially when she was starting her career, she was not, she was not what, you know, she wasn't Haley Mills. She wasn't, she wasn't Hollywood beautiful. She wasn't Hollywood pretty, yeah. She, I mean. She was just pretty. She was your girl next door. Like, she looked like the person you, you lived next to. Yeah. Um, and not in the hot way. Uh, just the normal, <laughs> normal person way. So, um, the other names were um that possibly could have done it were Carrie Fisher, uh Bo Derek, no. Kim no. Cattrall, no. Rosanna Arquette, no. Michelle Pfeiffer, maybe Ellen Barkin, Kim oh, Basinger, Kim Bishop, no. Gina Davis. Love Gina Davis, but no. Brooke Shields yeah. and Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger. <sighs> no, they cast this perfectly. They did. Nobody they really could have done did. it better. No. They got they got Jody and it was she was absolutely the perfect person in the five minutes she sang. Correct. Um Okay. Also okay. fun note, they they almost they were worried about having her in the final scene. Oh. Because of the violence. Yeah. But she was like, I'm fine. <laughs> she has always come off as a very mature girl. Yes. Sybil Shepherd. I love Sybil Shepherd. She's beautiful. Well and very funny. But she pretty much got fired for this movie because she couldn't remember a single fucking line. Was she doing coke? I don't know, but Scorsese apparently had to feed her almost every line she gave. Wow. Like, it was bad. I mean, I loved her on Moonlighting. She was bad. I mean, she's kind of notorious for not being easy to work with. And that could be for a variety of sexist reasons. I totally understand that. Didn't know that. Now I'm sad. But I, I, I love her. There are stories about that, and that was an interesting side note on it. it. Was like, it wasn't real easy working with her. That might be why she's not in the movie as much as she could have been, because I think she was essentially fired eventually. Okay. Well, I what we see of her in the movie, I like. Yes. I I think she's a very relatively strong woman. Yes. As for her character written, she's not really phased by the creepy guy in the cab is watching us. Like, she's just, and when he comes in to talk to her, she's just like, okay, uh-huh. And even when he's on a rampage, yeah, she's, she's just, still calm. Yeah, she's She's just, like, uh-uh, no, 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 shut it down. It's okay. Yeah, and then, like, when she leaves the dirty, she's like, I'm, I'm not gonna do this. Like, I'm leaving. Goodbye. No. Um, no, she's very strong, and I like that, and so... She did a good job, so I'm sorry. She... I don't care. She, I liked her. It was, it's just it's, <laughs> it's interesting trivia. Um, the only three actors that they mentioned were Farrah Fawcett, who the producers wanted. Not against uh, uh, De Niro. Meryl Streep. <sighs> Meryl Streep can do no wrong. She was. She, this was before like anything. Yeah. Because she did the Deer Hunter broke her, and that was two years later. Mm-hmm. And then Sigourney Weaver. Ooh, I love Sigourney. 
But this so, character is too much like her character in Working Girl. Sybil so works. a better movie for her. Um, Scorsese liked her for certain reasons. Sybil. Because she's hot? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Sometimes it's okay to cast somebody because they are good looking. That's fair. It's particular, this type of role, you have to look at her and know and see why Travis likes her. Yeah, that's fair. And why he would idolize her from afar. Yeah, that so, definitely makes sense. So not too. only is she beautiful, but she's also strong. Mm -hmm. Like, and maybe she doesn't completely realize that part, but you have to understand the second you see her, why you like her, and why, why he, he likes her. why he's obsessed with her. Yeah. Um, Same thing with Iris' character. You have to look at her and know why he's concerned. Because mm -hmm. his whole thing is he's going to save her. Yep. You have to get that. and I, So in Both that regard, those. they did a good job. Yep. Next up is the opposite, which is Albert Brooks. He's so deadpan ridiculous in this movie. He's playing a bumbling a, a bumbling man. Like just a, I'm a, I'm a work man, blah, blah, blah. He is so good at playing uptight. <laughs> I agree. You didn't he, like him in this movie? I don't care about him. He's he's not in the movie enough. Okay, so he he plays... Sorry, it took me a second to realize who, who he was. Like, <laughs> it, took, it takes a while to realize he's in it when you I see keep, him. I keep going back and forth between him and Peter Boyle. And like, which we, oh, yeah. what, what are we doing? Um, Albert Brooks is Sybil Shepard's co-worker boss yeah. guy. He's fine... I feel like they could have made him... A, he's just not... He's not memorable. No. I think that's the problem. He's not memorable, which is, you know, why it took me a second to remember who it was. But he he's not, like, overly cautious with Sybil, being like, you shouldn't talk to that guy. It's just weird. I, I don't care about him. That's fair. I did like the one line where um, Paul Schrader went to Albert Brooks uh, when the movie came out and said, you're the... I, I loved your performance. You're the only one I didn't understand. <laughs> Which Albert was like, I think that's pretty funny considering that you seem to understand Travis. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Uh, Peter Boyle as Cabby Dude. Cabby Dude, I like him. I don't remember his name. Peter Boyle. That man, he, I mean, he's since passed away, but that man never aged. No. <laughs> he just got less hair. And everything he did in the seventies, like every automatically, everybody thinks of him from everybody loves young Fra well or, or young, young Frankenstein, Frankenstein and things like that. Anytime you see him like truly act in dramatic films, mm -hmm. God, he's amazing. He was just as good as any of the rest of those guys, and because he looked the way he did, he just got shoved into more character type roles. Okay, but everything everything he did was just imbued with realism you know, and a little bit of wildness. Character and, work pays the bills, yo. And he was he was incredible hmm. in just those real dramatic roles. So it's it's just a treat to get to see him in a in a in his element. Not playing the clown. Yeah, just playing an no, actual he's, person. He's good. Um, again, kind of like Albert Brooks. He's just so small that I don't. It's true. He doesn't subtract anything from the film. I don't know that he so much adds anything. No, collectively, those guys, at the the three cab drivers yes. he's with do less than him. They're, the scene with him at the cab with De Niro, though, is really good. When mm -hmm. Robert, can, when Travis confesses that, you know, he's thinking some really dark thoughts. Okay. That's a really great scene. That is a good scene. That's, um, okay, so maybe he, okay. he adds a little bit more, but Albert Brooks doesn't really. No. Okay. Harvey Keitel. Oh my god, I didn't realize that was him. <laughs> Harvey Keitel with long black hair and the pimp hat. And man, he is ripped. A sport. And he's creepy as fuck. Okay. Uh -huh. Harvey Keitel, his whole career is just him being creepy and gross. Creepy and a gross dude. That's... I need to see a movie where Harvey Keitel is not creepy or gross. I think the piano. Or violent. Well, I guess. Oh no. I've never seen the piano. Okay, we're going to put that in our Oscar film. <laughs> Because you need to see that. It's a... Oh. And Holly... With your love of Holly Hunter? Yeah, I know. I'm ashamed of you. I know. Okay, so that's going on the list. Expect that in the spring, people. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just... he His look is so edgy gangster that it just makes sense. Which is funny because I think by all accounts he's kind of a nice-ish dude. I don't know. I... I say that and I might I might find out otherwise. <laughs> Wow, he's no, he's <laughs> his look is so out there. I, that wig, that wig is amazing. Actually, I don't even know if that's a wig. That might be his real hair. 
that long black hair is nuts. It's <laughs> nuts. I seriously, like, I knew he was in the movie. Yeah. But when he showed up, I'm like, oh my god, that's <laughs> Harvey Keitel. And what? And let me let me throw this out there that so him on the street is the pimp. Mm-hmm. First of all, when Travis walks up. The, the perfect thing is Travis walks up to him and he just looks at him, cocks his head, and puts his hands out for him to arrest him because <laughs> he automatically he assumes, assumes he's a narc. Yeah. Um, but the flip side is what's so amazing about his character is that scene with Iris. That scene in Iris in her room when she's looking for protection. Oh, it's so, ugh, it's so gross. It's so it it and, made me. I really wanted to fast forward through. I, I know like, this is know. horrible. And the thing is, is it I, I it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. It might not have been necessary, but he's acting so well in that scene. Okay, yeah, everything that's going on in the scene from a performance perspective is good, but it makes me feel gross. I know. That's why I didn't want to watch it. However, uh, can I make you feel a little more comfortable? I know it wasn't her. Yeah, it was body double. I know it was her sister. Okay. I know. No, I mean, I was, I, after read reading that. that, I kind of feel like, okay, I feel a little bit better. <laughs> I, like my protective mom heart feels better for the actress. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, but it's still supposed to be a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. It's gross. Men are dogs. And I'll throw, so I'll throw the last one out there, which is also gross, is Martin Scorsese. Oh, he's so bad. The he's so bad. And this was not his best look either. Oh, this is still cocaine out, Marty Scorsese. Was he a cokehead? Yeah, we'll talk about that with Raging Bull. Apparently, that was a really big deal. <laughs> okay, I didn't know about that. Um, I think they were uh, here. I automatically assume every one of those guys did cocaine. Like, it was a given <laughs> in that circle. <laughs> I don't think that's an unfair assumption. <laughs> but he is awful. He's just too. He's. It's it's like he's trying to play manic, and he just comes off as just twitchy and weird. The weird part is I. Th- See, I really liked the scene. Hmm. Uh, but I can agree that they had an actor who was going to do it, and he got hurt. So I, I think it was out of necessity and time. It was just like, fuck it, I'll do the scene. And just got in the car and did it. Yeah. Um. So I think maybe with a different actor, that scene is so good at... Lots of scenes, you know, you've got the rich guy with the prostitute in the car and yeah. you got this stuff. But I think this is a scene where it's like... it. It shouldn't have been a guy in a suit. It should have just been a guy in a work shirt, mm-hmm. which is kind of a plain dude. But giving that line about his wife and wanting to kill her and then going into deeper and deeper rage, somebody that's kind of like Travis. Hmm. So that it was somebody that's on his level. He's like, well, these people are bad. These people are bad. It's like, oh, somebody like me is bad too. Hmm. That might have worked a little bit better. Probably. I think it's more the writing is the problem with that scene. I don't know. I I feel like the writing works. I think it's it's the it delivery. doesn't match uh, delivering. It doesn't match what Travis is getting out of it. Well, Travis is great in the scene. So oh, yeah, yes. it's it's Marty's end that is not good. It okay. just didn't it didn't work as well as it should have. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the look of the movie, the cinematography and editing. How do you feel about it? Well, I didn't notice the editing. There's one scene. When he gives the line of, you fuckers, you screwheads, and he stops. Mm-hmm. So you're watching him turn towards the mirror, and he stops the line, and he has to start over. And you and they cut and go back around again, and he's looking. They do some little, they do some little cuts here and there where you're seeing his train of thought through the camera lens. That I feel like comes up a little bit. Yes, I, I do agree with that. I know, I know specifically when he's on the phone. Yeah. And the, the camera moves away to the hallway. That's a, uh, Scorsese says that's the the scene that tells the story of the whole movie. Yes, no, and I agree with that. That was beautiful, but that's, because of, that's cinematography, not editing. Yeah, um, we can talk about cinematography too. It's, it's all know, in they, one thing. They all go together. Uh, editing's fine. No, there's nothing distracting to me. There's you yeah. know, um, like I had some issues with Goodfellas. I thought it was too choppy here. It all seemed to flow very well. Cinematography is really beautiful. I do get that manic dream aspect that they were going for. I like, um, especially at night, a lot of the lights felt like they were oversaturated in their color. And they did that even with the opening sequence. They they did a bunch of weird filtering processes over it. Mm-hmm. So you saw those streaks of like green lights yeah. and stuff. 
And that was specifically designed for this. That guy went on to do apparently Star Wars and, a bun- and Apocalypse uh-huh. Now and like every title sequence known to man, but he was unknown at the time. Wow. So good on you. Yeah. Good um, job. So no, I really, I, you know, cinematography was good. And then the last tracking sequence is brilliant. When they, when Travis, when Travis does the gun to his head and then they bring the camera up and track it through the whole apartment complex. Yes. To see the trail of, kind of watching of around. violence. Yes. Took three months to prep that scene. Oh, I believe it. Cause they you... had to cut a hole in the roof of the apartment <laughs> and track the camera through. You know, cameras were a lot bigger back then. You know. know, we didn't have all this handheld digital film. shit. Um, and also with less money, you don't get as many opportunities to film it. And then, so have you read about the filming of the end sequence? No. And the, the rating issue. They desaturated the colors on the ending. The blood doesn't look rich and red. Yeah. Because they were threatening an X rating. Oh, an X rating. Because of how violent it was. Wow. At the time, X was NC-17. We didn't have NC-17. Oh, okay. So anything, I mean, that's how, that's what porn's, porn's yeah. were rated. But it also, if you were overly violent or overly Not sexual, you would get an X rating. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, hmm. So did that take, did it take away from you at all? No. Scorsese actually thinks he likes it better the way it is in the movie. Well, okay. It's probably a good thing because I was surprised that Travis lives. And I think if we had seen that much more blood, I would have been like, well, that's not possible. We'll talk about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> the cinematographer wishes that they still had a print of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they have lost all of them. But no. Mart, but Scorsese has, has said, you know what? I think I prefer it to, to what we filmed. Okay. So I think he's, he's made his piece on that. Uh, real quick, let's talk about the music and Bernard Herrmann. Okay, they have that one... The saxophone? Thing, the saxophone theme that I think they overused. Yeah. I had the same problem in Goodfellas. I know. It's not bad. It all makes sense. I like it when he's driving the cab. They're using it other... I think it would have been better to have a very specific piece of music for when he's driving the cab, and then there needed to be different music when he's with um, Betsy... And then a different music when when he's with Iris. Yeah. And it could have still been saxophone, but they used the same bit of music over and over again. And that was annoying to me. I almost wonder if that had to do with the fact that Bernard Herrmann was basically dying while making the score. Well. (laughs) And didn't have time to completely finish that off. (laughs) Okay, well... What they presented on screen, I didn't love. So. No, I get it. I get it. And I'm not saying that to like to, no, no, to not talk I, about the opinion. I I just wonder about that. Look, in that we time. pick apart everything that was going on behind the scenes when we're watching a film. But for me, the music is just I I I it, they use the same thing over and over again. Setting that aside, uh-huh. the music itself did you did you think it, it was worked okay. really well? It was okay. I think that opening sequence music it works well is with the opening. Yeah, so creepy and dark. I agree with that and wonderful. And then, I mean, that guy's a legend. He started with Citizen Kane. He did all of Hitchcock's most famous movies. He did the theme to Psycho. He did the Twilight Zone theme. Oh, yeah. Like, this is a this is a top-notch composer. And so the movie was dedicated to him because he passed away. Aww. He passed away Before right after got... recording the score. Oh, that's sad. And his daughter was just like, you know, you we knew he was dying, but he wanted to keep working. And so he saw he he had reservations about working on such a violent film, hmm. but he ultimately decided to do it. He did psycho. Come on, that was like a big fucking deal. This was this is a new level of violence know, for a guy is. from the forties. It is a new level, but like um, <laughs> So was Psycho when it came out. I know, out. I know. <laughs> Whatever. It it was what it was. Um okay. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a theory that popped up from the critic circles on this movie about okay. the ending. Okay. And you haven't heard this, which I think is great. Okay, yep. Nope, haven't read about this. Roger Ebert went public suggesting this. Okay. That Travis is not alive. Okay. That everything we see after the sequence when the police find the bodies is a dream. That he's in the cab, he's driving around, he's a hero... Betsy's got respect for him and gets mm-hmm. in the cab. And Iris is okay and she's with her parents. And then that little flash in the mirror right at the end when he looks out. Did you miss that? No, I saw the oh, flash. Yeah, yeah. And so it's all a dream. Okay, so where's Travis? They think he's dead? That's what critics suggested. Well, it makes... Okay, he idea. was shot in the neck. Yes. So that's why I was surprised to see him alive. 
Scorsese, Scorsese and Schrader have both said absolutely not. He's alive. Okay. I think it's better if he's alive because... I agree. Because, and, and here's why, is ending it with him just dying mm-hmm. would be, you know, it would cap off this amazing rise of this tortured character and then this tragic suicide, this tragic death. Yes. And suicide mission. Mm-hmm. Um... Also brilliant in that scene is when he puts the gun to his, his chin and it jams. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so creepy. Yeah. Um, but the the coda, the last little bit of that ending, says so much about society. Because we've talked about Travis this whole time, but then we tack on that society largely lionizes people like this mm-hmm. who go for justice without anybody advising especially in new york at this time now it'd be a little different we'd probably mm-hmm. just be talking about him being mentally ill but in the 70s That's a really at big the aspect height, of i mean it. you know son of sam was right around the corner he yeah. was largely modeled after after david berkowitz actually i think this was right as son of sam happened and, Ber- and berkowitz had been jailed so okay like all that panic had been going on people were looking for a vigilante okay and so I think New York at that time, it made a whole lot of sense to tag that on and to, to be like... To, to turn him into a hero instead of just a sad guy. Well, people turn him into a hero, but he's not a hero. No, he's not a hero. And what's what I think is perfect is that flash in the rearview mirror right at the end proves, uh-uh, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> no, he's going to keep doing this. Exactly. This is going to... This is until he actually dies. And Schrader said a couple of really interesting things. He was like, uh, the next time this happens, it's going to be even worse. Oh, yeah. And the other thing he said um, that I think is very perfect is now it, the way it works, it's circular. When you get to the end of this movie, you could literally start it over again. Yes, It's I agree. a cycle of violence that keeps going. So there we go. That's Taxi Driver. There's a lot to talk about. I do like the idea that it would go around in a circle. Yeah. Could. There was another movie we saw recently. I don't know. That was like that. But this is... I was like, let's start it over again. But I think that's, you know, I like the idea, too, that that ties to a cycle. A cycle of violence and mental illness and loneliness. Oh, absolutely. It's a manic episode. The only hope is that he isn't as isolated anymore. That that he's with those guys. Mm -hmm. He could break free from it. You see that possibility there. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to happen. Okay. We got through it. How many stars do you give this movie? It's your movie. You have to go first. I do. It's five stars. Wow. That's our first five. This movie still blows my mind. Like, it, the the acting in it is so unique mm-hmm. and so nuanced. They could have easily camped this. He could have mm-hmm. easily played this unhinged De Niro and didn't. He played it real. You know, everybody in it is just so good. Scorsese had such a clear vision and executes it almost perfectly. We've got one scene we've got a qualm with. That we don't like. And even then, I kind of like it. <laughs> okay. To me, it's it's a perfect movie, and I give it five stars because not only does it execute so well, but it and it gets into a discussion and emotions that go beyond it. I mean, with stuff that's hmm. going on right now... Um, we could talk about the stuff going on in Hollywood with women. Mm-hmm. This movie hit me in a place about that in a huge way. Like it made me, it made me really go to a place to think about that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, to me, this deserves that highest level. It deserves five stars to me. Okay. How much would you give it? I was gonna give it a four. Okay. It's a very strong movie. Uh, I all the performances, all of the direction. I think it is something that should definitely be looked at and studied. Uh, I'm just not as gaga over it as you are. I understand. It's yeah, of it. I just, I, it's for me, it's a solid movie. I'd probably watch it again. Yeah. So I think you can get inter- You can get new things out of it each time you watch it, you know, oh, yeah. and you just reframe what you're looking, what for. you're looking for. Yeah. No, I could see all of that. Yeah. Um, but it it deserves its praise and its accolades. Even though it won almost no Oscars. Not shocking. It's a Scorsese film. Well. Scorsese's not allowed to win. But this was, and, and we can talk about this more, this is like my favorite Oscar year of all time because this same year we had Rocky. Oh. Which won Best Picture. Uh-huh. 
Um, but we also had Network, which we're going to watch soon. Yeah. And we also had All the President's Men. Oh, yeah. Which was the Dustin Hoffman. It was a loaded, loaded year. Actually, yeah, we're doing Network in two episodes. I know. And that, to me, hmm. I love this movie. That's even better. And that won all the acting awards. Network um, Okay. And then the only other one was Bound for Glory, which is Hal Ashby's movie about Woody Guthrie, which is also supposed to be amazing. So it was maybe the strongest year of all five candidates. Like, all of those are considered classics you, in their own right. Well, yeah, I like it when you have a year where you look at, at who's being nominated and go, yep, that sounds about right. And I'll give props to Rocky. Like, there's nothing... There's, there's nothing disqualifying about that movie it's a different kind of movie and people it won because people wanted a happy story because the other four movies are very dark well rocky kind of gets shit on because it's a stallone film and it's kind of a sports movie but it's not it's not only that well it was every movie up until then had been really dark and gritty yeah rocky was a gritty movie but a happy movie a, a good guy story. It's a it's a triumph story. And also, Stallone. Stallone is great in when, it. When Stallone puts his mind, when Stallone really wants to, he writes a really good movie. He's actually a good writer. Oh, he's just been paying the bills with the with the All punch him, shoot him up then. films. Yeah, that's. I mean, I cannot fault those guys. Same as, thing with Schwarzenegger. As as annoying as it is, at some point uh, we're watching Rambo: First Blood or watching First Blood. Ah, oh, damn. Okay, then you have to watch Bloodsport. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Bloodsport, I, but I intended for that to happen. Okay. But you have to watch First Blood because I think it steps above what you expect a Rambo movie to be. Okay, that's fair. And Stallone wrote it, so. <laughs> well, that's it. I don't have anything more to say. I don't. I think we covered it all. And yeah. Next week we're gonna watch Heather's. <laughs> yep. Classic Winona Ryder, Christian Slater movie. Nineteen late eighties, early nineties. I mean, I know it was the late eighties, but the late eighties. That's kind of they kind of bleed into each other. Yeah, there was a lot of crossover in that time period, but I'm excited for you to see it. Continuing my lack of high school. You have nothing on high school movies. Nope. Nope. Not a thing. And we're, uh, Mr. Robot's back on TV, so we get to love on Christian Schlater just a little bit more. So is Stranger Things. We could love on Winona Ryder. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting. I mean, we've got all these things going on. Too much television. Too much television. Talking about that on our movie podcast. (laughs) Sorry, movies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys. We saw Thor. To be specific, Thor Ragnarok. Ugh. It's amazing. I want to go see it again right now. Like, we left the theater and I was like, I want to go see it again. We will. We probably will. Oh, yes. Like, I feel about this movie the same way a lot of people feel about Deadpool. It was so fun. It's hilarious. It's great. Is it the best single character Marvel movie we've seen? No. What's the best one? Iron Man? The first, yeah, the first Iron Man was really awesome. I'm also going to say Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. Is wonderful. Here's the thing, though. I feel like that's wonderful only because we loved the, we feel like they finally got Peter Parker nailed right. Yeah. Some of that, some of that's the character mm-hmm. more than anything. This was the first, I mean, with the exception of Deadpool, but that's a kind of a different thing um, that they're trying to pull off that. This is the first... Marvel character film where I feel like everybody in the movie was just having fun. Oh yeah, which I know was purpose was purposeful. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, Thor is my favorite of the Avengers. I, I was him last year for Halloween because our family was the Avengers. Uh, I love Thor. He cracks me up. I love his fighting and arguments with Hulk, and we get a lot of Hulk in this too, which is just so fun. And, I mean, there's some very attractive men in this movie, so that does not hurt. I mean, Tom Hiddleston is Loki. is he is an, He's a wonderful character, so he's fun. It's, just, it's all awesome. But before we get to that, uh-huh. can we talk about Taika Waititi? He's the director. He's so good. He has a cameo in this film, and it's wonderful. And he really, he had fun with this movie. And it's great. I think it adds so much to 
the Marvel Universe. Um, I really hope it allows them to have a little bit more fun. I got a flavor of this with the first Avengers film. Right. Which Joss Whedon wrote. Um, and he's he's pretty good with those, with the group talking. Right. Um, <clears throat> group dialogue. Group talking, what am I saying? I don't know. Um, this was so fun. It was just fun. Well, okay. So, I mean, the only move, the only stuff we've seen of his were the episodes of Flight of the Concords that he directed. Which is amazing. I mean, yeah. And he's intimately worked yes. with those guys forever. Yeah. All of his movies that have come out, I've wanted to see. Mm -hmm. He did Eagle vs. Shark, which saw, seemed really oh, interesting yeah. way back in. Um, what We Do in the Shadows looks amazing, and yeah. I'm still kicking myself that I haven't watched it yet. Mm -hmm. And then just recently, Hunt for the Wilder People, people were just like, that is... They, they equated it to kind of a Little Miss Sunshine type thing. Oh, okay. It's just an infectiously happy, quirky movie. Well, and I think that give, where we are at with the cinematic universe for Marvel, we needed this movie. And we needed a movie that was just like, yes, it moves moves the whole story along. It fills in some gaps, you know, with with the last Avengers, you know, uh, you know, Hulk and Thor take off, and then for uh, Captain America: Civil War, neither of them were there. So where were they? Well, this is what they were doing. Yeah, and that's important and interesting. And I so, but this movie is just fun. I think I, I think he's. It's almost like he's his fun and joy at making these movies mm -hmm. and the jokes they're doing infects everybody on the set. It seems well, like that's, that's what happened. awesome. I think that's what, I think yeah. that's what happened here is Taika just was like, okay, we're going to have some fun here. We're going to have some fun here. Yeah. <laughs> brought that, brought that Kiwi he accent. He sounds and... like the Geico Gecko. Yes. He's... Or, or David Beckham. <laughs> yeah. He's a Kiwi. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, but, oh, it's, oh, pay have... money. Go see it. Yep. It is so fun even if you're not a big superhero person this movie is fun just everybody shows up in it everybody's great in their in Jeff their Goldblum's roles. great there's this whole little in-universe cameo thing that happens and it is it, that alone is worth the price of admission <laughs> it's great I will say that there are two credit scenes and they're kind of bleh. It's okay. They're not revealing. But again, where we are at in the Marvel Universe, uh, we don't need them. We don't really need the, the end credit scenes anymore. Not, well, and They're going to have to keep doing them, but they we don't need them because we know where we're going. And not with this movie, particularly. No. You know, back in the old days when, you know, it was at the end of Iron Man and it was, you know, Agent Coulson finding Thor's hammer in the middle of the desert. You're like, oh, yes, it's going to happen. Or, or, <laughs> or it was the doctors talking about the gamma rays and the Tesseract. You know, those were interesting and those were necessary to move pieces around. But now we're kind of getting to the culmination of everything. So we don't need them as much. Well, you know what this movie kind of is? Mm -hmm. It's kind of its own Guardians. A little bit. That's that's it's, a bit more equitable for it. It adds something to to what's going on, but it it stands alone very well. Although the only the only thing it does do is it's got two of the linchpins involved in it. Yes, which makes it a much bigger deal for the the stuff going forward. Yes, I liked. I read one review where someone said, you know, Thor is one of those characters where if he's not there, do you miss him? And you're like, and he, but he, and he is, because when you look at all the Avengers, you can't not have Captain America, you can't not have Iron Man, but you, know, you take away Hawkeye and, um, what's her face? Black Widow. Black Widow. You're kind of like, meh, who cares? But when you start taking away Thor and Hulk, it's like, where are those dudes? Yep. Like you don't have to have them, but you're like, where'd they go? Wait. What are they doing? No. And and that's that's how this feels because I don't care about a Hawkeye movie. I certainly don't care about a Black Widow movie. Not that she doesn't deserve her own, but we've heard all of her backstory. I don't care. Yeah. Um, we're, we're so far removed from it. God, it's such a good movie. Look, even if you're not, even if you're not yeah. in on Marvel movies and superhero movies and you are done with them, you are eye-rollingly done. Because this one is just fine. Go see it. Exactly. There And there are some people who are. They're just like, yes. I am so done with all of these stupid movies. What other new superhero do I have to keep up with? Yeah, I was talking about that with someone at work, and they were just like, I just can't keep them all straight. Yep. And I'm like, that's totally fair. So this one, just go see it, and don't go watch any of the others. It's just fun. It's Enjoy just it. fun. Yep. I want to go see it again now. 
Well, we can't now. But I want to now. Soon. Okay, soon. All right. Bye, guys. That's it for this episode. Please take a moment to review and rate us on iTunes. And for questions and comments, drop us an email at macintoshandmod at gmail.com.